0: Kilda, and welcome to the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey and today we have with us Dr Saab Johal who is really interested, along with me, in the whole issue of stress and mental health and how it affects your ability to live in this world. Saab, great to see you.
1: Great to see you too, Bernard. Thank you for having me on.
0: No, it's great and we've got lots in common apart from anything else because we've both got substacks and um, really enjoying um, building them up. Firstly, Sub, I'm curious about child poverty and stress because we've had some numbers out in the last few days from the government about child poverty. We've also had Treasury saying they're concerned about a widening gap between the young and the old. And I wondered from your point of view how financial, social, housing, health, obviously in these times of COVID, how stress in those areas can turn into a feedback loop for child poverty.
1: Mm, Yeah, I think you're right. I think we've seen today some information coming out around this generational gap between, you know, those people who are older and those people who are younger in New Zealand. And we've known for, for quite a while now that, you know, financial insecurity tightly limits and constrains how we experience the world. If we think about, you know, even the report back in 2017 from the Child Poverty Action Group, over one in four children in New Zealand living in relative poverty. And it's not just us. There's there's lots of countries where this is going on. And the thing about financial insecurity is that not only does it change how we experience the world, but then it also starts to limit the trajectories of life that then become available to us in the future. What we experience as a child in terms of financial insecurity has repercussions for us as adults. One of the myths around this is that this is about personal responsibility Mm. or having the energy or resourcefulness to do something, to choose to do something about your situation. And I think what's clear now is that many of these choices are just not available for us to make because if we don't have money at the moment, as a parent, uh, as somebody who's trying to figure out how we pay the bills with energy bills going up, transport bills going up, inflationary cycle, you know, really peaking. Our entire relationship with money and its interrelationship with how we get our basic needs met becomes completely warped, and that lasts. How we think about money really, really starts to influence us in the future too.
0: Could you talk us through the science of stress and decision-making and how it accumulates over time And starts to affect the way that you not just see the world, but make decisions.
1: Well, if we think about it from a a point of view of how much resource that you have consumed by living with scarcity. And it's quite clear that scarcity consumes your mental bandwidth. There's an article that came out from Princeton University recently Mm -hmm indicating that it seems to crash your IQ by about 13 points. And that's roughly equivalent to trying to think after being forced to stay up all night without sleep. That's how the impact is. Now imagine that not just one day, but day in, day out. So you can see that from a learning point of view, just being at school and trying to concentrate and focus is really going to start to impact your learning outcomes because you're just not able to process that information because you're constantly tired. Now, if you think about how money then also impacts upon our dignity, you know, how it is that we're able to be in the world, you know, if you don't have shoes that fit, if you have leaky shoes or perhaps you don't have shoes at all, if you can't food on the table such that you're hungry so you're not only living in scarcity but you're also hungry which then also impacts your mental bandwidth then these are all things that not only affect your neurological capacity to be able to learn but also your dignity and, and being around others who don't have to live in those circumstances but also if you're congregating and you're living in neighborhoods where this is the norm and this is how you do life you know, the luxury of being able to think about wide-ranging life issues or pleasurable pastimes, these are just not available to you if you're feeling and living with financial instability.
0: Well, one of the things that I um, have learned to think about as a financial journalist is the idea of having uh, a balance sheet, if you like, having reserves upon which you can call. Now, A lot of people have some drama in their lives, maybe a relationship breakup or perhaps a a health episode where their income may take a hit or there's some extra costs. And often, uh, for those people who own homes or uh, maybe have a bit of cash in the bank, they can use those reserves, if you like, those actual financial reserves, or in many cases, the reserves of their families around them. And uh, you often hear this from people in Treasury, actually. They talk about resilience, building resilient communities, which can deal with shocks. Could you talk us through how, when you're depleted in your financial reserves, but also your, your mental reserves, maybe you don't have the family supports around you or the stability around you to deal with these shocks, how, how those things accumulate together and can turn into a feedback loop?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think what you've nailed here is that really can cascade in its effects. So if we think about, you know, as you say, this resilience, perhaps you've got a comfortable buffer of cash reserves, you've got savings, or you've got a stable income. So you know that you've got money coming in so that you can deal with your outgoings, or you've got people who you can rely upon like family or friends to help you out when things get tough. Or like you say, you've got assets that you can draw upon, you know, you can perhaps remortgage your house or think about selling some of the things that you own in order to get that cash flow. All of these things add to that resilience. But what we're seeing now is that constant financial insecurity means that people have a really low level of resilience in terms of being able to think about withstanding some of these stresses as they come and go. Being financially stable or being able to draw from these assets or your savings enables you not only to live in the here and now pleasurably, or at least not under stress, but it enables you to strategically and creatively think. Now, all of these things, all of these abilities of strategic thinking, creative thinking, being able to play with your children, you know, all of these, you know, being able to be in the here and now to be able to do that, money helps you to be able to do that because, When you're under constant stress, you think of the world as a completely threatening place. So you're really in survival mode where you're focused upon fighting, fleeing or freezing. People become really paralyzed in these situations. So this is where choice is not really something that is an option for people. They're just fighting to survive. And when you're in this perpetual state of apprehension where you see threat everywhere because money's not coming in and you're outgoing to continuing or increasing food prices or you found yourself in an overcrowded home, perhaps, because you've had to move out. You've had to move in back with your parents, for example, or in shared housing. Now, often this can cause family strife or arguments. Or maybe you're living in a house that's not only hard the heat, but leaks heat whenever you try to pump any heat into it or parents working multiple jobs and they're preoccupied with trying to figure out how they're going to put food on the table, meaning that even though they want to spend time with their kids, they can't. All of these things start to cascade into a really harsh world if we're financially insecure. And it's not a delusion. We have fewer choices available because our minds are fixed on solving the problems in the here and now. And that's how the brain works. All this creativity, sensitivity, strategic thinking is a nice to have when you're struggling in the here and now. So um,
0: you come up, come up with an idea that I find uh, really interesting as a, a framing uh, of this issue, the impoverishment funnel. Could you talk, talk me through that?
1: This is a, an idea that growing up in financial insecurity seriously impoverish, impoverishes and starts to deplete the time you get to spend in other modes other than survival. So this is the creative or strategic states of mind where you can focus not just on the short term, but in the long term. Right. So rather than growing up in an environment of trying to manage the here and now and trying to solve these problems and all the social stigma and lack of dignity that comes from that, you get to take part in a normal life in society like others around you do. You don't get left behind by friends who carry on doing what normal people do and instead we we may become isolated, we become more alone, we feel more stressed because all of these experiences that money unlocks for us then start to disappear. As do you end up in this funnel where all these experiences of trying to make ends meet and then all the social experiences that are withdrawn from us you funnel further and further down
0: and the circles become tighter and tighter and more and more isolated as you go down
1: absolutely and i think that the issue then becomes you know these people are not seeing a way out of their situation and if we if we start to accept that financial insecurity is a key factor in setting people down this impoverishment funnel then i think there are some clear questions about what it is that we should do so looking at
0: it from a, um, a brutally financial point of view, again, I come, I come at these things from t- P&Ls and balance sheets. And also, having followed, our Treasury um, thinks about these things, and ultimately it is Treasury's view of the financial state of the government which often decides whether or not policies are pursued. We have the example in December 2020 where the Social Development Minister Uh, proposed a $50 a week increase in benefits and Treasury said that the government and therefore the the country couldn't afford it. But I'm curious about how these sorts of financial, housing, uh, social, educational stresses, particularly during COVID when there's been plenty of these shocks come from all directions, how that plays out over the long term with these sorts of feedback loops in terms of potential to be brutally honest, liabilities in terms of social spending, justice spending, education spending, lost productivity, uh, aside, of course, from the, from the sheer and quite unmeasurable issues around feelings of well-being. Um, and not, that, not just that, we've also got the health costs. So I wonder whether in our, our saving money in the short term, whether we are building up in our balance sheet a big liability in the long term that underestimates the power of these feedback loops.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think just as individuals, we can become focused upon immediate threat and try to manage the immediate threat we as institutions or societies can also get trapped in this threat management mode. And I think that one of the things that we need to do is to lift our head beyond this three-year parliamentary cycle of these short-term fixes or not fixing it because we feel like there's going to be too much cost that then needs to be carried forward into the next parliamentary term, which we want to avoid that liability or avoid that burden. I think we need to be thinking much more strategically and creatively for the long term because the threats are that these impoverishment funnels are already intergenerational and they become locked in in ways that become much more difficult to intervene on later on. Unless we deal with the inability of people to make their basic needs through adequate income and services, then these will cascade forward and get locked into increased health service use, social service use, all of the things that we're trying to save money on, we're dooming people to choices, in inverted commas, that they have no control over. And I think that we're willfully blinding ourselves to this. These people are leading these diminished lives and we're stripping them of their dignity and we're choosing not to intervene through this, I think, false idea that we are going to be carrying a load that's going to be too great to bear for society. My thought is that we're actually doing exactly the opposite. We're creating mm-hmm. extra load by not intervening.
0: Yeah, this this sort of framing that we've had really for the last 30 years, although maybe even for longer, that there is such a thing as the um, deserving poor, if you like, that choices are made. That people decide, you know, not to apply for a job or to uh, to use recreational drugs, or um, uh, you know, can't afford to pay the warrant of fitness, and therefore um, that's a choice not to pay the warrant of fitness, and therefore you'll be pinged with another two hundred dollar fine, or um, because you were short of money one week, you borrowed money from MSD, and you you made a choice not to pay, <laughs> to pay it back. I just, I just wonder um, whether this framing that we often see in politics around um, uh, uh, government help for people in poverty and particularly kids in poverty is, uh, is in a way a false one because it assumes that everyone starts from the same baseline of resilience and resources and everyone can make the same choices that perhaps I can as a well-paid politician with two or three houses.
1: I think one of the assumptions here is that any kind of short-term intervention, like a, you know, a short-term loan from Ministry of Social Development or being able to pay a particular bill because you happen to have money that week, somehow brings you back up to baseline, somehow brings you back into a point where you can start making these choices in your world. And I think this really severely underestimates the amount of insecurity that people are living with. It doesn't bring them back to baseline it was a momentary blip where they're able to pay that particular bill or meet that particular demand but they're still financially insecure in the greater scheme of things not just that but on a day-to-day basis it's just one thing has been ticked off that they're able to do so i think that we're vastly underestimating the impact that this is having on people's lives they're still in threat management mode they're still trying to manage the here and now they're not able to take strategic long-term plans, because that's just not how the brain works. And I think that there's another piece of work that needs to be done, is as we start to lift people out of this basic, fundamental, absolute poverty that has become entrenched, then I think there's a whole skills-based set of interventions that need to be brought in, because there may be generations of children and adults who are living in the same area who have no skills around trying to figure out what are the options available to me now that I'm not in this situation? What What is my span of control? Where will my wings lead me to? Because at the moment, everybody is walking around with clipped wings and we're expecting them to fly.
0: Yeah. And the last two years have been a particularly um, stressful time for a lot of people. But obviously, when you don't have a lot of Um, resources in uh, social terms or in uh, financial terms or maybe you've got particular housing stress. We've now got more than 25,000 people uh, designated to be homeless and in need of homes. We've got uh, 5,000 kids living in motels and this is not just in New Zealand but all around the world. I wonder if there are some natural experiments in a way that have been carried out over the last two years where some countries have paid large amounts of just straight old cash to people, everyone, just across the board, sprayed, everyone gets the same amount, and uh, particularly in that low to middle income groups. Whereas in New Zealand, there is still very much a focus uh, on targeted spending, on um, uh, making sure that it, all of the, the taxpayer money goes to only those who deserve it and have made the right choices. I wonder what you're seeing in terms of the research around um, poverty levels, uh, health, these sorts of things, after the um, various different responses to COVID that we've seen around the world.
1: I don't think we've had long enough yet to see how this is this is playing out. We, we are certainly starting to see warning signs that mental health problems are starting to rise, but I think it's complex around where this is coming from. And part of it is around fear of the virus, part of it is around the secondary impacts of some of the policies that we've had in place, rightly put in place to protect us from the worst impacts of the virus itself, but then have secondary impacts upon people's incomes, people's businesses. But I think the interesting thing here is when you are choosing to intervene, then at what level are we intervening? Are we intervening in a way such that we are expecting any kind of financial stimulus to trickle down somehow to the people who need it, it will somehow filter through? Or are we making choices around who is deserving and who is undeserving? Or are we putting money in the back pockets of people who already have assets or resilience and such that this money doesn't actually make it into the economy, it actually makes it into savings and it doesn't actually stimulate or change people's lives or their lived experience. So I think we need to get much more thoughtful around how we actually intervene and where we can make the biggest changes for those people who are most in need but then I also think we need to really think about not just dealing with those people who are in the most abject of circumstances. but We have a massive problem of working poor, not just in New Zealand, but around the world where we have people who are living from hand to mouth in the gig economy or where their working conditions have been eroded such to the point where they have no financial security that they can count on, which perhaps they used to be able to do. I think really it's the working poor that we need to be thinking about. And we do have you know, systems like working for families that are designed to tackle things like this, but that hasn't been looked at for quite a long time.
0: It's interesting to see the likes of um, uh, the uh, Child Poverty Action Group and others calling for uh, significant increases in working for families. Also changes to the clawback uh, thresholds, which haven't been adjusted for inflation. And also uh, applying the wage indexation to working for families uh, payments, which in a good way have been applied now to, uh, to benefits, um, sickness and unemployment benefits, to match the superannuation benefits that have been in place for, for decades. Uh, but it's interesting, $5.2 billion was the cost estimated by the Welfare Experts Advisory Group to increase plain old cash incomes for uh, families uh, immediately um, when the report came out in 2019. And uh, the most recent estimate, given the increases in costs, is that for some families, they still need to see an increase of over $300 a week to get to the point where you could say they have an adequate income uh, to to begin to do things like save a little bit or have some uh, resilience there. And one of the things I f- I'm, I'm keen to explore with policymakers, politicians, is to what extent they are estimating the long-term liabilities that they can quantify, if you like, in the, the p and the budget. Uh, uh, we like to talk a lot about the risks of having um, a lot of money to pay on New Zealand Superannuation and Health in the future, but what about the money that has to, <laughs> has to be paid to deal with the... Um, the the new generation of, and larger generation of those who are uh, having kids in poverty and, and essentially uh, extending and deepening that feedback uh, loop?
1: As you say, the counterfactual case, the cost of not intervening here, the cost of not taking actually what is in an investment approach in improving people's lived experience such that they can be more strategic and long-term, they can be more creative, They can add, you know, if you're thinking about it just in dollar terms to the generation of wealth in the economy, you know, this is really about the investment in people. And I think that actually what we're doing here is we're choosing which people get the investment. And I think that that's something that's at the nub of this. What and who are we leaving out? of the benefits that are accrued when we start to think about pumping money into the economy to support various sectors and not others, then how are we making these choices and what choices are are we making? And I think we need to be very clear-eyed about that at this point in, in our financial cycle and the life of the nation.
0: Well, hopefully we'll see um, some more indications in the budget, which comes up on, on May 19. Dr. Saab Johal, thank, thank you so much for uh, being on uh, my podcast here on the Kaka, and I'm, I'm really pleased that you're able to host this too on on your Substack. Um, uh, great to see you. Thanks again, and no doubt we'll we'll talk
1: again. kaki kite anō. Sure, and I'll look forward to sharing this with my audience on my Substack too. Brilliant.